The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Margaret Fetting. She's author of Perspectives on Substance Abuse, Disorders, and Addiction with uh, Clinical Cases. This is the second edition of this book. Um, Dr. Margaret Fetting has her master's degree and her doctorate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. She's a clinician in private practice and a faculty member at the University of Southern California and has identified over a dozen specific types of behavior associated with alcohol and drug abuse. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, and we're going to call you Margie. (laughs) Well, thank you, Catherine, and it's great to be here with you this morning as well. Great. Okay, well, you're a social worker, you're also a PhD, um, so it really is a treat to have you on the show because I love having social workers on and getting their perspective, and as we said a little bit before we got on the air, uh, we as social workers really haven't gotten our word out, I don't think, so uh, we're going to do that today and, and talk about your book. Um, your book, I think what the focus is, Achieving the Right Balance, Preventing Harm When Indulging in Drugs and Alcohol. And you say, and then I'm going to let you do all the talking, but uh, we all like to drink. We all like to, I guess, do drugs as well. And it's kind of uh, since the beginning of time that we have pursued intoxication with elixirs of all types, whether it's uh, sex or drugs or alcohol or plants, and that hasn't changed over the years. But, so, but how we handle drugs and how we handle alcohol in our daily life is what's important and what we're going to be talking about. So let's start with your book, um, the premise of the book. What is it? Uh, well, you, you mentioned a major premise. I actually have seven philosophical cores to the book, but the ma- one of the major ones is that human beings naturally desire and even need to escape human consciousness with the help of alcohol and drugs, as you said. And I really focus on the fact, as the ancient Greeks remind us, that this desire for intoxication is benign. It's not sinister or sinful. Yet, Catherine, it's full of the complications involved in, you know, our personal negotiations with any pleasure. Um, So what I encourage all of us to do is to accept this desire, embrace this desire, and develop a relationship, uh, an understanding of your relationship with any substances of pleasure. Well, Marty, one of the things is, as I'm listening to you describe uh, our relationship or our behavior with, with, in this case, it's drugs and alcohol. It's not sinister, you say, and it's not sinful. But yet every day we're talking, you know, just say no to drugs, which kind of implies that it is maybe sin. Uh, I don't know if that's sinister or sinful. 
And even religions, you know, also kind of abstinence-only kind of thing, whether it comes to sex, drugs, or alcohol. So this kind of goes against the prevailing uh, thought, I guess, does it, in our culture? I I think it does, Catherine. Uh, I think it very much does. And I, you know, I've come to this over the years um, with great respect for this desire. And I think the... You know, impulses of pleasure make human beings nervous. And instead of educating ourselves that this is natural, it's understandable that you'd want to imbibe in substances of pleasure, you know, as much as possible. They feel good. But as the ancient Greeks said, it's up for up to us to educate ourselves about the mastery of these impulses of desire, the mastery of this pleasure, rather than as you mentioned, I think the culture, out of fear, imposes a just say no or some kind of religious commandment. Which doesn't work, by the way, and so we end up not having, as you say, and I, I kind of look at your, in, in, in the way you approach it, uh, the behaviors associated with drugs and alcohol, it's very practical. It's very, it, it, it makes sense because this is what we do and we want to feel pleasure in different ways. Um, now you've broken it down into like, what is it, 15 different categories of how we use drugs. Were we talking about alcohol and drugs or, or, is, or is, are they the same categories? Well, I'm talking about alcohol and or drugs. Uh, okay. you know, some people like alcohol, some people like marijuana. I'm just talking about substances of pleasure, which include alcohol and drugs. Okay. So you're talking about, you give these 15 different kinds of relationships um, that you identify and how, categorize these for us. Uh, yes, I do. Well, one of the things um, that's happened to me over my years of teaching is that I became uh, very dissatisfied with the notion that, you know, if you use diagnosis, we diagnosed two ways for the last couple of decades, abuse and dependency. And that seems very uh, black and white and seems to miss the point that each of us have a unique relationship with substances. So from clinical observations and just watching people and my work in writing, I began just developing these relationships sketches or profiles that I saw that people were engaging in and using. So, for example... So, and it's not um, all or nothing, in, in, what you're saying. It's not, uh, there are right. different categories. Right. And did you get this from, and you're a clinician as well as a professor, I mean, I would imagine that you've got a whole pool of, of people to draw from uh, at U.S., at, 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 you teach at USC, <laughs> in college anyway, so I, you know, because college students obviously are ones that are imbibing, um, and, and also in your clinical practice, do um, you I don't know if you should give examples at first or give examples as we go through each one of these categories, probably. Um, we, we can go through the categories, but I also think another thing, Catherine, if I could add, um, in the last uh, about seven years, I live in Europe as well as the United States, and I greatly observed, uh, I don't want to generalize, but Europeans relationship with alcohol and drugs. It seems very different than ours. Uh, they seem to embrace this ancient desire and don't speak of the word disease. And 
expected to be a part of the pleasure of eating and socializing and enjoying life. So that, too, has added to my um, development of these profiles that suggest that we, as you said, don't do a binary black-white approach, but engage in conversation around each of our unique relationships with these substances. That, that's a great example, and I guess that's something that uh, I really hadn't thought about. I mean, I spent two weeks uh, with my family this summer in, in France, and it is something that I noticed, but I guess I'd never verbalized it like you are. I mean, and I think people sit down with, with wine, particularly in France, and mm-hmm. it involves a lot of, it, it's not sinister, it's not sinful, it's quite the opposite. It's families drinking together, talking, spending time eating their food, not separating drink from food and racing, you know, in and out of a restaurant. So um, I'm glad that, that, that that's a great example. And uh, I, guess, I think we can take from that uh, as a culture, Americans. I do too, Catherine. I really think, you know, we have a lot to learn from Europeans on this. I think it's very important. <clears throat> So we have a different attitude, our culture particularly. Yes. What about other cultures? All right, yes. you know, you talk about Europeans because they're different as well as we, uh, you know, their cultures are different too. Um, mm-hmm. Who else is similar to us, would you say, who has this kind of sinister, sinful, abuse, dependency attitude towards alcohol and drugs? I, you know, I, I think it's predominantly us that has this, you know, the disease model, which you know, may be very useful for some people to think, you know, that they have the disease of addiction and it helps them get absent if that's what they feel like they need to do. But uh, I don't see too many other places in the world. I know no other place in the world uses the disease model. Um, And I think some cultures, like some of the Asian cultures, might drink more like Americans because their economies are so similar to America and there's this push, push, push to achieve and then go to the bar at night and get a little loaded. Whereas, as you mentioned, in Europe particularly, uh, there's more of a sense of relating and socializing and alcohol and wine particularly, as you said, is embraced in the pleasure partaking of living. So it's really us, you're saying, who has this disease, predominantly disease model. And I always thought our model, too, was kind of derived from that, the, the Puritan ethic, whatever that is, but uh, that, you know, no sex, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing that's pleasurable is viewed as sinful and sinister. And I don't know if we still kind of carry a little bit of that with us, you know, in terms of our history as Americans. Absolutely, Catherine. I taught a workshop this weekend, and that was a big topic of discussion, what you mentioned, the Protestant ethic. And it's, you know, kind of prohibition against pleasures and its emphasis on discipline, individuality, and production. Was this with your students or with another population? Who was the group you did the workshop with? Um, I did a workshop this weekend with a group of um, a psychoanalytic institute here in Los Angeles. And so it was a group of clinicians, and we just had the very discussion you were talking about, the Protestant ethic. So is that something that we can... Yeah, go ahead. And it's, you know, its relationship to to the pleasures of life, uh, because the the emphasis is on production, individuality, and uh, discipline, as opposed to enjoying. 
how can we change that? I mean, because it, it seems, yeah, because, and then I want to get back, because I'm always interested in the, the um, well, their adult population, but the college kids, because they kind of maybe, when they're in high school or middle school and parents are terrified their kids are going to drink too much or take too many drugs, and so they get into this all-or-nothing disease model, you know, don't, mm-hmm. and uh, as a matter of fact, I had a friend whose kids, I mean, I, who were not allowed to participate or drink any wine in a religious uh, dinner um, at home until they were 18 years old because they shouldn't be drinking wine. And I totally did the opposite of that. I mean, you know, grew up in a Jewish family and had uh, we always celebrated, you know, Passover and those holidays. And when I had my kids, um, they participated in drinking the wine as a family unit. Uh, they were obviously under 18, and I think that was a good thing. Uh, and, uh, but there was always controver- there was a lot of controversy about that amongst parents and, let's say, of, of my generation. Right. And <clears throat> I understand, and I, I'm hoping that this kind of conversational attitude and approach that I have toward understanding your relationship will further many people's efforts, not just mine, to accept more this ancient drive rather than think it's a bad thing, but it's a part of human life and it's something, an impulse that we need to master Um, and we need to struggle with their mastery, Catherine. You know, working with anything of pleasures, food, sex, you know, alcohol and drugs, you don't get it right all the time, but that doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. It just means that you maybe need to struggle someplace in learning to master something. And if you struggle, let's talk about the struggle. It's not bad to struggle. It's a part of life. And I think in the uh, mainstream uh, addiction literature, there's often been the feeling that if you struggle with the mastery of alcohol or drugs, that you're really an alcoholic or addict in denial. And I think that's not always the case, that uh, pleasures are tough to manage. They're fun, but they're tough to manage and feel good about enjoying them and feel good about yourself. I think the word manage is key. Manage, manage, Mm -hmm. manage, because really you're so right and... uh, uh, I mean, our relationship with drugs and alcohol as a culture really isn't a good one if we look at the statistics. It does get into that uh, abuse and dependency and disease and all of these kind of negative terminologies, and, uh, and our kids are, are doing... Uh, we have more people who are really addicted to drugs, who don't know how to manage, who have never been taught to manage. So I think what you're saying is really important. Uh, what, can we talk specifically about some of these categories of managing drugs and alcohol that you've developed, these 15 categories? Uh, the first one I, being... I, yeah. Go ahead. The, well, the first, you know the first one, <laughs> voluntary non-user. What's that? That's one category. Right. Um, Catherine, if I can, I just want to follow up on, on what you just said about uh, you know, the numbers of people um, addicted that haven't been able to manage. And one of the studies that I reference is a study by Esser in 2014. And from that study, they concluded uh, or proposed that actually 30% of, there 30% of the U.S. population are excessive drinkers. And only 3% 
of the U.S. population is actually truly physically and psychologically addicted. So we have a lot of good care out today for the addicted, but we tend to shy away from offering problem drinkers an opportunity to explore what's going on with their relationship with drugs and alcohol. Well, don't you think, think, and I'm going to call you Dr. Fetting, because you are the expert, obviously, PhD, MSW, and for anybody who's listening, but um, I I think, yeah, I think that managing and not being addictive addicted to drugs or alcohol is difficult for us. I think it, it implies an, an ambivalence. Like, we don't like ambivalence. Ambivalence is difficult to deal mm-hmm. with. And isn't that what we're dealing with here? Because maybe we have some ambivalence yeah. over the way we drink or do drugs. And so it's much easier to do the all or nothing thing. I think as a culture, it's difficult to deal with ambivalence and also as an individual. So especially in this area of our of behavior. I think that is a spot-on, excellent point, Catherine. I think that's at the root root of it is ambivalence. The, we love it. We hate it. We're, it's a pleasure. We're worried about it. But that doesn't mean you have to do the all or nothing. And maybe then we can move into some of these profiles then that you, because I think it moves away from the all or nothing. Yeah, it definitely moves away, and it'll give, you know, it gives us a real understanding of of the ambivalence and of the different places or the different kinds of behavior each one of us may be uh, associating with alcohol and or drugs. But the first category you have is voluntary non-user. So uh, we're starting with somebody or a group of people who don't use drugs or alcohol for different or the same reasons. Right? What is that? Exactly right. Um, in my list of categories or clinical sketches, I have healthy relationships and then some troubled ones. And voluntary non-user is a person, one of us out there in the universe that says, you know what, for health, for religion, for what I saw growing up, growing up I'm just never going to engage in this uh, pleasure of alcohol and drugs. I just don't need it in my life, and that's the way I'm going to be. And that's one type of relationship. You want me to keep going? Yeah, the next one, okay, that's the one, uh, because, you ca- yes, definitely want to talk about, well, the next category that I have here is your experimental user, which is a totally a different category. Who is an experimental user? What do they do? Okay, experimental users are usually associated with adolescents, and certainly adolescents can experiment. And the definition of, of experimentation is to test something out, to try something out to see if it works or not, to, to test an unknown. And as you mentioned with just say no, we, for the longest time, really you know, killed the notion of experimenting, which is a wonderful human capacity for risk-taking. And with risk-taking of all nature, you also want to make sure that you take into account uh, the cautions that you need to do while risk-taking. And if people are told just say no and don't talk about it, then everything becomes a secret and everything becomes uh, prohibited and then, of course, more desirable to overdo. 
So, I think also, Dr. Fetty, what happens is, and I'm getting back to the teenagers and the college kids, I mean, I think kids, and this is, I'm just generalizing, but very often kids who have just been so restricted in high school, for instance, in terms of any experimentation, let's say at home, and, and I gave the religious example before, they get uh, they get to college and they go crazy. I mean, they get in, you know they've never been able to, as you say, experiment in a in a, a rational, responsible way. And so when they get into a college environment, they're the ones who are you know, getting blasted every night and and maybe not going to classes or whatever the ramifications are. So um, it was good to experiment. I think in the context of your own family as well. Excellent point. And, you know, what I'm trying to do here is, you know, depathologize our relationship with these substances of pleasure and indeed encourage and articulate, well, I don't know, it's up to individuals to encourage, but be open to experimentation and certainly talk about it with your, with your children. And then another group in experimentation now that I work with more and more is, let's say, a couple that's 40, 50 years old I'll use the example of a couple, and they've been sober um, from drugs or alcohol for, let's say, 20 years. And they decide, you know, we want to bring drinking back into our lives, but we want to do it in a responsible way. And a lot of times I get couples that come to me or individuals that want to experiment again after a long time of abstinence. And this is a new clinical sketch I'm seeing, and many times it works just fine after some struggles, but uh, people manage these pleasures. Uh, That's an interesting concept because I used to, uh, when I first began uh, clinical practice in uh, in social work, it was the definitely the all or nothing thing. If you had, if you thought you, if there was some kind of problem drinking, it had to be an all or nothing thing. You could never ever drink again. So this is a whole new phenomenon. So is it like I don't know about statistics, but the number of people like that you see, does that work? To, I guess you're saying it does work, that you can begin to drink responsibly, um, even for couples who you say have been totally sober for, what, 20, 25 years? Right. It's on an individual basis, Catherine, and it certainly it has worked. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking of all the people I've worked with. It, it has worked. But I also want to make a strong point in all this that I really do believe in that 3% of the U.S. population that's truly addicted. And they cannot pace the pleasure for whatever reasons, biological, psychological. And I really very much agree that abstinence is the course for some human beings. I'm just saying let's open up for other explorations as well. But I certainly work with many abstinent people who would never consider taking, taking it up again, and that is just fine. I'm all for encouraging the individual exploration, not the all or nothing, as you said. What do we do, though? How do we identify ourselves? Do we have, as at all, it has to be complete abstinence, let's say the that I'm one of the 3% of the population or that I may be somebody who maybe will be able to just manage my drinking. Like, do we need to go to you? Do we need to go to... (laughs) I think think if you want... You alluded to the fact if you didn't learn to manage your impulses, you didn't go through that education process when you were young, of course 
you're going to overdo it and then possibly feel most comfortable with abstinence. But some people do seek out people like myself or do seek out groups like moderation management, do seek out other support groups that will help people relearn to manage these impulses that were not explored in, their, let's say, their family of origin. And some people also that are truly addicted have a certain level of trauma that probably is best served by abstinence. And some people just don't want to open up the door of exploring. And I have total respect for that. What do you do with parents, for instance, because I'm, I'm kind of honing in on that couple you mentioned. Let's say you have <laughs> parents who are have been completely sober or, or maybe not even that couple who are abstinent. Um, what do they do in tr- and they feel they are part of the 3% of the population who really needs to remain mm-hmm. abstinent because they can't do the moderation management? But what, exactly. are, what about their children? What about their families? I mean, do you, uh, like, how do they raise their kids? I mean, because maybe their kids don't fall into that category and would be able to manage their drugs or alcohol. Well, I think that is a potentially conflict conflicted situation. However, I know last year, early last year, or last year, I can't remember when exactly, but I spoke at a couple of high schools here. And so I think it's encouraging if students, and we walked through all the profiles and clinical sketches, and these were students that were, you know, 16, 17, 18, and they were very open to exploring this. So hopefully, if the parents are conflicted and are going to encourage abstinence, uh, children, young adults can get information from schools, et cetera, that's different than just say no. But it's, it's an issue. It is an, an issue. issue. What about the schools? You mentioned, okay, you're lecturing in the schools. Are they giving more accurate information in our school systems? Because, you know, we're not going to be able to go through all of these categories because we only have three minutes left. But, of course, I encourage people to read the book, Perspectives on Substance Use, Disorders, and Addiction with Clinical Cases. And we're talking to Dr. Margaret Fetting and we only have a couple minutes left, but what are, so if you want to know those other categories of behavior in terms of how we, our relationship with alcohol and drugs, you, you can read the book and, and uh, explore those. But are we doing anything with these kids? Are we, like, are we teaching them stuff that isn't this abstinence only, or are you really unique in, in someone who's engaging the schools with this kind of, uh, with these kinds of talks? Well, I think that we're slowly, very slowly, um, tolerating a philosophy and clinical approach such as the one that I feel so comfortable with, Um, but I do think it's slow. I think the field has been dominated by the all-or-nothing approach, so, you know, I'm not alone. There's Ed Kantian, you know, there's so many people in, in this field that have been encouraging a similar attitude harm reduction, which is all about reducing harm, not insisting on abstinence, is certainly out there now. So it's slowly getting in there, but it's slow work to open up people's minds because most people are just afraid, afraid of the pleasure, afraid, as you said, of the management of the pleasure. Well, Dr. Margaret Fetting, it has really been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, even as a social worker, I have to say I learned a lot of new information. So can you give us a website that we can go to, both professionals and non-professionals, if we, more, if we have more interest, obviously, in the subject and in your book? Um, I don't have a, a, a website that, uh, of my own that, that I can offer. But, um, you know, I, I would 
encourage people to look at the book because it does open up a big conversation about 15 relationships with substances, including social use, solitary use, daily use, problem use, a whole range of categories so that you can explore your approach individually. Okay. And we can get the book at where? Bookstores everywhere? Online? Amazon. Amazon.com. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Thank you so much and, uh, for being on the show. Okay, uh, well, it, Catherine, it's been a pleasure, and your questions were so thoughtful and at the same time opened up conversation, which was provocative and wonderful. So thank well, you so much. Thank you. Uh, we are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author and Professor Beth Schaefer. Uh, we're going to be talking about her new book, Trump for Principal, a children's book for American grown-ups. Interesting story. Beth has written and published three other humorous books. She is an adjunct community, uh, not community, but, well, maybe community, but communications professor and teaches composition at National Lewis University in Chicago. She has a master's degree in written communication. Uh, she also has her own publishing company, Books on a Whim. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Beth. Thank you so much. So you're an interesting woman. You are. You have an MA. You teach. You write, and you also have a bookstore, as I said. Uh, but now you're really getting in, I guess, into the presidential uh, arena here. Your new book, Trump for Principal, a children's book for American grown-ups. What's this book about? Is this about? Tell us about it. Is it first of all? Is it for children and grown-ups, or both? 
Um, I would like to think it's for children too, because I raised my son with <laughs> in a, with a political um, opinion here. But no, it's it's a book for adults. Um, there's certainly nothing you know children might enjoy it. Um, but it, it is definitely it has commentary that is in formatted in the style of a children's book. But it is definitely for grown-ups. Okay, it's for grown-ups. It's about Donald Trump. Uh, that's all we hear about in the news. Uh, it seems to me, in terms of candidates, or most of the time, it's all about Donald Trump. So why write a book about Donald Trump? Why did you decide to write this book about him? And this, this, this I guess, would be a parody about him and and what he has to say. Oh yes, I mean the, every single page is a parody of him. Um, you know, it's funny because I don't even I don't even remember how the idea came to my mind. Sometimes when I write books, they just almost magically appear. Uh, and this is one of those cases, and it's funny because I just racked my brain. I remember it was August where I had the idea, but I don't remember what stimulated it. I, I don't remember where I was, uh, but all of a sudden I knew I wanted to or had to write this book, uh, and I had it completed in two weeks and worked with a, found the designer that I wanted right away and just um, got that, that book written. So it, it's funny because I find that interesting myself because I, I don't remember where the idea came from, but it did. Um, it so, was, yeah, it, maybe it was divine. It was inspirational. It came from the divine. But I can't imagine, Beth, writing a book in two weeks to be able to actually sit down. <laughs> and you completed the whole thing in two weeks? I did. I completed the whole thing in two weeks. I mean, it is a it is a children's story, so um, it's not really text heavy. So it wasn't too difficult. Oh, but it was such a blast! And this cartoonist um, has uh, color illustrations on every single page, and he is, in my opinion, just brilliant. So uh, to be truthful, without this cartoonist, I don't think the book would have. Um, I'd like to think it has power. That might be too strong a word. Um, value maybe, uh, but this partnership I have with this cartoonist, we both work together so well, and I believe now that this book has some real value, um, and if not, at least it has value in, in being very funny. <laughs> okay, so um, the story is told, as I understand it, from the perspective of Jewel, who is a sweet second grader who is initially excited about Lincoln Schools, that's the name of the school, new principal, I guess, who is Donald Trump. So take us from there, what happens in the book? So this, this yeah. Okay, um, so yes, Jewel is a second grader. She's a sweet little girl, a little blonde girl, really sweet. And uh, the book starts with their current principal, or rather former, uh, retiring. And uh, she is somewhat symbolic of Obama. And she retires, and Jewel is so excited to meet this new principal. She imagines the principal will look like a fairy princess and be sweet and serve chocolate cake. And so she, she and all the other children rush to the bottom of an escalator uh, and await their, the arrival of their new principal. And then coming down the escalator is Trump. <laughs> so Trump is the new principal. And uh, I don't know if you recall that when Trump announced his uh, that he was running for uh, president, that he was descending an escalator. So there I had a little uh, jab at that. Jab sounds like a mean word, but I guess it's fair enough. Um, so, yeah, so Trump becomes principal, and everything starts to change in the school. Uh, for example, I mean, there's so, there's so much in here, but his principal's office really hit, represents the Oval Office, and it just looks, uh, you know, crazy. It's it's absurd. There's um, his, I don't know if you've seen A Christmas Story, but there's that famous lamp with the um, 
the woman's leg, and so that's on his table, and it's it's hard to explain, but this image is really cool. So that's the represents the Oval Office. He starts firing people, of course, like the extra excuse me curricular staff. Um, Mexican students start disappearing from school. The hallways become a mess. Uh, the auditorium serves as uh, a, a stage, a gathering point for him when he's elected. He elects himself Mr. America. And the cafeteria uh, becomes overtaken by fancy waiters and uh, quartet. And uh, he's sitting on a throne. It's Really, ex- it's really extreme, but it's so much fun. It's so yeah. much fun. When you say it's extreme and so much fun, but also, as I understand it, all the comments throughout the book are uh, re- were comments that were really spoken by Donald Trump. Is that true? That is true. Yes. So all of the quotes from Trump um, are actual quotes, except um, when he says the word country or America, for example. And in real life, um, I changed, I switched the word country with school for example. So in this case, the grade school represents our country. And so, yeah, so I take quotes like that, like what would happen to the school if he's principal and what would happen to our country if he's president. So Beth, what do you think the implications for the book are? I know you've said, and I I think I'm quoting you, my intention was to poke fun of Trump in a way that would amuse Democrats, Republicans, and independent voters. So is the book meant to be just amusing, or is it going to get us to really start thinking about, well, I think we are thinking about the issues that you bring up in the book, but uh, does it go further than that? Um, I guess it does, but I didn't plan for it to be that way. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a liberal, and I'm interested in politics, but I would never consider myself to be influential when it comes to making a difference in politics. I would, I would love to be, but that isn't, I mean, that isn't my passion. I vote, but you know, that's, that's about it. Um, so really I just like to, uh, one friend of mine referred to it as ruffling feathers. <laughs> that's, that's what I just love doing. In fact, I mailed a copy of the book to uh, Trump headquarters. I'm sure he won't see it, but it'd be awesome if he did. Um, well, when did you mail I'm it? Thinking, Have you gotten a response yet? Oh, no, I don't expect a response. <laughs> I don't expect a response, but I just hope he sees it. Um, so, I mean, I think that Republicans could enjoy it. Those Republicans who are, um, you know, against Trump and are concerned that he would be elected president and misrepresent or represent, I don't know, their party. And obviously it's for, de- for Democrats, you know, primarily, I, I guess. Um, so when I write this now, like, I, I don't, Imagine it making a difference. I didn't write it with the intention of making a difference, although that, that would be wonderful if that happened, but it's not a, in the slightest bit my intention. I just like to really take these extreme areas and um, mock them. <laughs> and well, I think I'm it's important. Too, I, you know, I think your book, as you say, I mean, it is extreme. And I mean, you talk about, I mean, re- there really is kind of this circus atmosphere to this presidential campaign, campaign, as in Trump's campaign. I do find that really disturbing. So I think it is, and I, it is, I don't know, it's, it, your book is um, really kind of, I guess, reflects that, but in a, as you say, in a humorous way, in a way that the Democrats, Republicans, and independents, we can all accept and digest in reading your book. Um, what was, and you, this is the second part of, I guess, my response is, I mean, you have a bookstore, books on a whim, and the the, the uh, website is booksonawhim.com. Um, I'm assuming, obviously, you're selling it in your bookstore. What's the response? I mean, do you, people buying it, and what's, how do they react uh, to, to the book, or do you get those responses? 
Um, I'm really, really happy. This book is definitely selling better than my other books, and I've gotten a really good response to this. So it's it's exciting because with my other books, I've you know just started. I've only been doing this a couple years. I would see you know a few sales creep in a week, and which is great. I appreciate every single sale that I make. Uh, but since this Chicago Tribune article was released, which mentions this book, and there's a picture on there of my son and me holding the book. Uh, I've had sales pretty, like, daily, and it's really exciting. <laughs> um, it's exciting when it's through my Books on a Web website. Um, somewhat less exciting when it's through Amazon, because Amazon eats pretty much 95% of the profit. But that's okay. I don't do this for money. I just do this to make people laugh, and it's, I do it because it's just so much fun. So how did you get into writing books? You said, okay, three other books, they didn't sell so well. One was a textbook on what business writing, and the other was about family. But you're a communications professor, so you've got all this stuff going on. And your son, how old is your son? He's eight. Eight, okay. So he's a little guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you, I mean, where did you get the, I, not just for this book, but how do, you know, as a communications professor, um, teaching other people how to write, um, what, when did you start writing yourself, or do you have to write in order to make keep your job as a professor? Right, right. <laughs> and actually, I actually have five books. I have, uh, or do I have six books? I have one, two, three, three parody books. One is the John Stewart Presidency parody book, and the other is my first book. And then I do have that uh, children's book for kids without fathers, um, which my son doesn't have a father, so I wrote that for kids. And then that textbook. Um, so my first book was is called Grade A Papers, which is a collection of fake college student papers based on a practical joke I used to play on my dad, who was an English teacher. And my father, uh, my father passed away in December 2012. And at that time, I was in business, so business writing, technical writing, and had been for a solid decade. And then very shortly after my father died, I had a a dream, and in this dream, I heard his voice, and when I awoke that very, very second I awoke, I knew that I had to start a uh, publishing business, and I knew I was going to keep writing those fake student papers that I used to stick in his stack of papers to grade that just sporadically, and it would just crack him up. Um, and I had been lamenting one of the, you know, many, many, many things I was lamenting after he died was that I would no longer be able to play these practical jokes on him with writing fake student papers and sticking them in his stacked grade. Um, and then when I had this dream and I awoke, it was boom. It was, it was literally an epiphany um, in the truest sense of the word for me. And I published my first book, which is a collection of fake student papers. Some of them were real ones that I, well, fake, real fake ones that my dad had seen. <laughs> Um, but a solid half of them, maybe even uh, three-fourths of them, are ones that I've created since he passed away. And there's art in there. Um, almost all of my books have are rich with colorful art by all these different artists. Um, so anyway, I've, I've been in the business now just about two years, so uh, it's all very, very new. Well, it's new for you, and I, 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 when I hear a lot, so many people think they have a story to tell, and they think that they can write, and they try, and, and sometimes with success, but most of the time not with success. But somehow, I mean, you have this, I keep hearing this thing, you know, like you have a epiphany, or you have a vision, or you just have this feeling that you can do it, and you end up just making it happen. Um, and 
I don't know if I'm trying to find the secret of your success or your ability to be able to do this, uh, but and I don't know if there is an answer to that, but like you somehow, I mean, you came from a family, your father's an English teacher, so you came from obviously a family where re- reading is important and writing is important, so maybe you just have it in your blood, maybe it's just who you are. I think so, because my dad, I mean, my my dad was amazing. He was humble and funny and brilliant, and he was an amateur cartoonist and a poet and satirical writer somewhat himself, and my mom um, was, she's still, she is still alive, but she was an actress, and my sister is an amazing writer. She's like a real writer, <laughs> not these goofy things that I do. Um, so I've always been surrounded by that, and I'm 41 years old. In my early 20s, I was a performer, like cabaret form- performer, and, and rock and I had a rock and roll band, all of that. So I was composing songs all the time, and then I wasn't making any money, so I got sucked into the well, willingly, I guess, um, into the corporate world, you know, to be able to support myself as you know a single person, and. Uh, did that for a decade and, and had no creativity anymore when I was a very creative person. And then, again, when my, my dad died, that was just a shocker. And that was when I went to get um, my master's so that I could teach was after he died. He, has, you know, he had no idea that I was going to be a teacher or that I was going to do this, that I was going to write these books. So, Beth, your father was the inspiration, obviously, for, for starting to write these yeah. books. But you come from a very creative family, obviously. And I found that, you know, when I, I've interviewed so many people, uh, similar situations where people who are creative in one area seem to be creative in another, even if they're better, at, uh, if they're dancers or singers or you had a band, it seems to kind of spill over. There's some kind of a, maybe it has to do with how you approach life and your spirit and the way you, uh, you know, I'm not sure what it is. Is, but it doesn't seem to be just people who are creative, let's say like you, who have found your niche writing a book, owning a publishing company. Um, it, it still, you still are talented in those other areas as well. I, I, I don't know. It, 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 um, it's not just in the area of writing. I, I think you've just put that so beautifully. What about um, your son? You know, because he's... Oh, he's, yeah. He's he's a blast. He's a riot. He's oh my god. He's the popular class clown at school. He's in second grade now. He, I am so proud of him. He's very creative and he's just a silly, fun kid that other kids like to be around because he's so goofy. Uh, I I don't know if he's interested in you know if he will be interested in drawing or writing, but he's just a real spirit there, and we have such a, an amazing connection there. He's uh, once in a while he'll give me an idea for a book or. Um, something, a character to put in one of the illustrations, and uh, I do that. <laughs> so observing him, like just being with, he inspires you as well. Um, eight years old, uh, you, the book you mentioned just a few minutes ago, Kids Without Fathers. So how, what was that book about? And I assume it's about your family and you and your son. Or um, Well, it was inspired by... Um, you know, the situation that we're in, it's not directly about our family. Um, the, the title of the book is Sometimes I Wish I Had a Dad and an Xbox. Um, and what it does is it, it's for children who have, you know, absent fathers, intentionally absent fathers. So it's not for children who've lost a father, you know, tragically or something like that or are in a divorce, you know, family where they only see their dad half the time. No, it's not that at all. It's, 
for situations like mine where, like my son, where the father is a deadbeat dad or, you know, just not there. And uh, so I had always wished I could find a book like that for my son, and I'm sure they're out there. I just couldn't find them on Google. There must be many, many books by other writers, you know, for kids in that situation, but I, I couldn't find any. And I decided to write a book about that. And what it does is it um, celebrates the men who are in the children's life. So it addresses that there is that um, feeling of emptiness now and again, but it, it celebrates the, like the teachers who are in the son's life, in the child's life or the coach or the, uh, brother and the, the excuse me the uncle and all these different characters. So it really is um, a celebration of those men who who are there, and for kids to see what you know appreciate their you know influence. Yeah, <laughs> not the right word. Yeah. So it, it celebrates the positive, as you're saying, and there are other people, other men, and, and I think sometimes when, well, we'll say when a mom is put in that position, uh, that you think that, you know, with an absent father or one who's, that, that that's it, that, you know, it's, that there can't be, a, I don't know if the word, is substitute the right word, like a teacher or an uncle mm-hmm. or a grandfather? That's really not a good word, substitute, is it? Because they, they're different, it's, they're, yeah. I know what you mean, it, I mean, it, it is pretty close to the right word, but I know it doesn't have the exact same feeling. Um, I don't, I don't know what word that would be. Uh, so that's the funny thing about me is if I were writing something right now, like an article or a book, I would have that word like right there. (laughs) But when I'm not in front of my computer, I, I must confess I'm not the most articulate. I was terrible in business. Um, so I'm not sure what that word is. Well, I think maybe the word is something if we're talking about positive. An uncle is an uncle, and he's a male figure, but he's not the—he's not a father. He's an uncle, and he has other things to add. Being an uncle, as opposed to a father or a teacher, is a teacher, and they have other things they're adding as a male figure, right? I mean, they're right, not the, right. So each one is kind of unique, but they're male. That—that's the overall. But uh, but they're unique male figures, I guess. That's that's kind of how I would see it. I mean, um, and obviously that's what you're son has in his life. So, um, and what was the response to that book? Because it seems to me there are a lot of women out there who are in in that position with their kids. That response has been very, very moving. Um, I've heard from some people that that's actually their favorite book of mine, that it's the most uh, true or the most, I mean, it's it's a heartfelt, lovely little book. I'm very pleased with it. So the response has been very supportive, and I look forward to getting it even more out there in the world. I've, it's also a new book that I just published in November, so I've been uh, working now on, on promoting this Trump for Principle book during the you know because of the timeliness of it. But I certainly plan on, on getting that children's the real children's book out there to um, the world. Yes, okay, the tr- the book the Trump book. Getting back to that because yeah, that's the book we're promoting today, but what kind of response, because I wanted to know this, from your students on the Trump, uh, on your Donald Trump book? Oh, from my students? Yeah. Oh, I don't share, I don't share my books with my students. I keep it focused on them, so I actually don't, um, I haven't told them about my publishing company or or what I do. I just like to stay focused on on their writing, so they don't, they don't know about it. It's a secret, but can't they Google you online and find out who you are, Beth Schaefer, really is? They could, but I, I, they probably have better things to do. 
actually, that's another point. Is if I read them the book, they could Google, Google things and find out stuff I don't want them to know. Uh, so, yeah, no, I just I like to keep it focused on them. And the last thing I would ever want is for my students to think that I take their material and mock it. That's been my concern um, because of that first book I wrote with the fake student papers. Uh, that has been actually it hasn't. My my concern or fear is that it might be perceived as um, um, mocking real writers, real um, writers who aren't real, excuse me, real students who aren't especially good at writing who are challenged writers. And that's not at all the tone of it. And, and everything in there, there's some excellent fake writers in that Grady Papers book and some terrible ones that you can laugh at, but none of it is mean. But that that is another reason, I'll, I'll be honest, that I don't introduce my writing to the class. I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand. But you're, of in, course, you're, they're listening now. Yeah, well, now I was going to say because I, I, this this show particularly goes around the world because it is on the net. So that you, and I assume, so your students can listen now. Actually, you can go and listen at the end of the show to your interview, and you can download it if you want to. You don't have to play it. <laughs> but uh, but controversy isn't controversy good for the students? I mean, if you you know talk about your book and maybe some disagree or whatever, or just the that's okay that you can talk about it in the context of the classroom? Probably. I think you're, you're probably um, right there. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm still pretty new at teaching, too. I've just been teaching a year and a half now, right after I, I graduated. So I'm um, a bit of a newbie there. I did, I just remembered, I did tell my class, I showed them a picture. So I actually, I remember one of my classes, I, I did, I didn't read the book or show them the actual book, but I was talking about my son and I showed a picture of my son and me standing um, on the in, on the bridge on Michigan Avenue in Chicago uh, in front of the Trump Tower. One day I took my son out of school. It was in November, uh, right when the book came out. I took my son out of school and we went to the bridge and stood in front of uh, the Trump Tower and sold books. You know, apparently we weren't supposed to. We didn't have a permit, but for four hours we were shouting out to passerbys, uh, Trump for principal, not president. Trump for principal, not president. And for the first hour, I noticed people were just like, oh, my God, no, 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 no. And then I realized that they probably thought I was saying Trump for principal, like P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, <laughs> which I wasn't. So then we changed the wording and handed out flyers and sold books. And my son was so cute running up to everyone. And so I have a picture of that. And I did show that to one of my classes. And they thought that was very funny. All right, so you did do that. Uh, we, uh, it's been um, really great talking to you today. Well, we've reached the end of the hour. We only have 30 seconds left, actually. Uh, so, Beth, I do, but I do want to get the book out there, and it is timely because this is the presidential elections coming up. So the title of the book is Trump for Principal, a children's book for American grown-ups. Get out, buy it. You can buy it on Amazon, um, and you can go, I guess, to Books on a Whim. Dot com. Go to that website. We've been talking to the author and uh, communications professor, Beth Schaefer. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I, I really had fun. Thank you. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.